0: So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top podcast. This is episode 726 for the fourth of Kiss Love in a regular year. I remember the first time that I became introduced to what's known as the scientific method. Uh, this was back when I was in school in Montreal in a pre-college, which is otherwise known as CGEP, um, called Marinopolis. And I took a few courses, which brought up the scientific method. One was the philosophy of science. Another was a statistic course. And this this idea of the scientific method was recurring a lot. And we, we really got into what that means exactly. Um, th- The scientific method has a long history, but it really became most popularized in the 1600s and it developed over time. And the basic idea of the scientific method was to really try to, um, you know, create a system for a lot of the scientific knowledge that was coming up to really make it a little bit more like tight like it's like if we wanted to really explore gravity for example you know what is gravity does gravity really exist it sort of gave this like way like bounds rules to test these kind of things nowadays it's used for many different things to find you know the effects of different uh, drugs on health let's say smoking is it bad for you is it not bad for you or whatever and one of the core components that got uh um that got added to the scientific method which I found to be the most fascinating was the concept of the null hypothesis what is the null hypothesis well okay basically the way that it works the way the scientific method works is like let's say you want to go out and you want to explore um, you want to see the effect of a certain action on health so for example let's say we wanted to study smoking the effects of smoking on health and wanted to see if smoking causes cancer let's say so that we would start with a hypothesis and that hypothesis would be that smoking causes cancer let's say uh but then where the null hypothesis comes in is that in order to prove this then The way we actually go about it is a little bit backwards, uh, is that we actually want to create another hypothesis, which is called the null hypothesis, which posits that there's no relationship between these two things. So, okay, so our hypothesis would be smoking causes cancer. The null hypothesis is that smoking does not cause cancer. And then we would have to go out and, and disprove the null hypothesis beyond reasonable doubt. So it's sort of like... Basically, to explain this in layman's terms, what we're actually doing is we're saying that rather than proving that smoking causes cancer, because that's not really something we can ever fully, fully prove, we are going to disprove that smoking smoking does not cause cancer. And this might sound like we're just kind of saying the same thing, but it's actually profoundly different because what we're actually saying is that, first of all, anything that we set out to prove, quote unquote, has to by virtue of uh, of the fact that we want to prove it it means that there needs to be a possibility that can be that it can be disprovable this is what distinguishes scientific facts from axioms for example which are more kind of like just uh, like we just accept them as fact for example that's a lot of things in math can fall into that category like one plus one equals two isn't really a scientific theory because it's not disprovable it just is you know and it's something we can all see and observe and we, we take it as fact but something like smoking causes cancer is disprovable theoretically even though at this point it's sort of been um we've disproved the null hypothesis we've disproved the fact that smoking does not cause cancer beyond a reasonable doubt at this point point. and so what this is basically saying is that first of all anytime we want to uh prove anything it must be perhaps paradox- paradoxically also disprovable in order to try to go out and prove it and the second thing is that there's always a certain level of humility involved because whenever we go and we um let's say you have a study like this and we disprove the null hypothesis beyond reasonable doubt it's always still there and it always still remains as a very slight possibility so as much research comes out about whether we're talking about um you know the theory of relativity the uh theory of evolution Uh, you know whether smoking causes cancer or not we can do all these studies and we can continuously go out and try to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that there is some kind of relationship there however the possibility that we're wrong always still remains and this actually becomes very practical as we see through, uh, through the years that there are times when many of these scientific studies are revisited and the null hypothesis actually does become proved and w- we actually find out that we were wrong, that we were uh, in error about a lot of these things. So why am I bringing all this up and what does this have to do with the Tanya? Because this idea of the null hypothesis and why it fascinates me so much is because I think that the deep idea there and what it's teaching us really on a practical level is that we really should always remain humble and aware of how little we really know about anything and we should never get so bold as to state the, we know this for certain we know that for certain there are very few things that we can say with certainty that we absolutely know at least when it comes to intellectual or scientific based knowledge and science itself the scientific theory understands this and posits this and a true and uh, an scientists who abide by the scientific method will concede to this and will agree that anytime you have a theory and even if you really really strongly hold down to that theory you have to understand that it is disprovable which means in theory at least somebody could come out and disprove that theory so again the main point that i'm trying to bring out from here is this idea of the limits of our knowledge is this acknowledgement of the limits of our knowledge and of our experience and so the way that this relates to the tanya and what we're going to be learning about today is in terms of relating to god uh in different ways so we've been discussing this in this in this essay of Kunshur's Ahran we're in the middle of essay four of Kunshur's Ahran and we've been discussing different ways that we can connect to god we can connect to god through learning torah right? Which is a very intellectual endeavor. Indeed. Um, We can connect to God through doing mitzvahs. That's another way that we can connect to God. And then we can connect to God through prayer, and each one of these things has a certain advantage and disadvantage over the other. So we've spoken already about the advantage that prayer has over the other two, because only prayer can actually change reality in a way that Torah and mitzvahs cannot. When we do Torah, when we learn Torah or when we do perform mitzvahs, we're connecting to God in a very intense way, uh, but we're not actually changing anything in the, in the in the evolution of creation, so to speak. However, today we're actually going to be focusing on um, on mitzvahs, and we're going to begin to discuss the advantage that mitzvahs have over prayer and um, and Torah study. Focusing on prayer, not so much in terms of the effects that it has on the world, but in terms of the more internal, like connection that it's generating within us and God. So tomorrow, we're really going to get into this specific, um, the the unique connection that mitzvahs give us over and above Torah and and prayer but today in introduction to that we're going to talk about the limits of Torah study and prayer and why um, Torah study and prayer as great as they are they do entail a certain limitation to them by virtue of the fact that they are tied to our subjective minds and our subjective experience and how much we understand which is why there's a principle that if a mitz- if you're in the middle of learning Torah, or you're in the middle of praying even, and a mitzvah comes up that only you can do and cannot be done by anybody else, you are required to stop learning Torah or even stop praying and go and do this mitzvah. And the reason for this, in short, is because learning Torah and and praying, as much as these things are very great things, they're very limited to you and your experience and your understanding of godliness. It's... um. It's a subjective experience that's limited to your own to you as a person versus when you do a mitzvah you're actually tapping into something that is way beyond you that's actually as we'll learn more tomorrow something that's a more universal kind of energy that that tra- that allows you to transcend your self mitzvahs interestingly enough um, by virtue of the fact that they're actually involved uh, when we do mitzvahs, we involve ourselves in external things in the world actually give us the ability to tap into and connect with God in a more internal way versus when it comes to learning Torah or praying, we only are able to connect to godliness in a more external way. So the way the altar explains this, and again, for context, we're still in the middle of essay four of Kuntur's Ahran is he begins by first of all, you know, reminding us of this precept, which is taught in in the Gemara in Mud Katan, page nine a, that to do uh, that, if a mitzvah comes up that cannot be done by anybody else, then we stop learning Torah. Even if we're learning about Maisei Merkava, which Maisei Merkava is a very lofty uh, Kabbalistic topic, which is based on uh, this description that's given in Cheskel, chapter one, um, of this like chariot that's above. And it's a very lofty thing. So even if we're learning like the loftiest aspects of Torah, basically the altar was saying, we still need to stop learning that if a mitzvah comes up that cannot be done by anybody else but us. So too, even in terms of praying. Um, which is when, uh, when somebody's praying, then they're in a state, hopefully, of a state like a, of, of a very intense, intellectually generated uh, love and fear of God. Like That's like a higher level of prayer that we're not just praying out of an innate love and fear of God, but we actually have generated an intellectually generated love and fear of God. Um, so even if a person's in that state of prayer, they still need to stop praying in order to do a mitzvah that cannot be done by anybody else. So why? Why is this? So the ultra verb says it's actually been already explained above so if you go back to yesterday's episode at the end of yesterday's episode we spoke about the fact that mitzvahs there they are the whole purpose of creation because the whole purpose of creation is to elevate and rectify those sparks that fell during the shattering of the vessels we explained all that yesterday right and that can only really be done fully through mitzvahs, through, um, through actually performing mitzvahs. And that's the whole point of creation. So it's sort of like, yes, Torah study, prayer, those are both really great things, but your actual, like the, what, what is God's actual, like what's our mission here on earth is to do mitzvahs. And not only this, not only is it just like, okay, that's our mission on earth, so that's what we need to do. But in fact, says the Alter Rebbe, there's actually uh, the, the performance of actual physical practical mitzvahs, as well as learning about them, like what you need to do in a practical way. They actually have a, a, a great advantage over the intellect, um, over the, the mind, which is involved in the love and fear of God, intellectual love and fear of God because so why is this what's the advantage so first of all so now the altar up is going to get a little bit into this connection to god through our minds and through our um, intellectually generated emotions that we can get so while it's true that we find in Devarim, uh chapter 11 verse 22 it says uh, and to cleave to god so meaning to say that we're supposed to cleave to god and the way we cleave to god is to cleave to his midos to his character traits and the way we do this is through intellectually generating this this love and fear of god like to try to become more godly kind of people right um so when we do this and so for example like if you know we know that like when we learn about god's attributes we know like god has an attribute of kindness of of giving so we want to become more giving people and and have this more giving nature he's he's um he's a compassionate god so we want to develop more compassion within ourselves still when we do this when we develop when we like try to emulate god in these kind of ways uh like in the, in an emotional kind of way we're um we're only we're not actually like we don't want to kid ourselves and things that we're actually ta- um, cleaving to god's uh attributes in a true way like in a in terms of their the essence of these attributes but rather we're cleaving to the existence of these attributes so this is these are terms in chassidus that come up the difference between the matsios and the mahus. but is like the existence of it of the thing and the mahus is the essence of the thing so it's sort of like like if you think about anything like let's say if you have like a like an apple so it's like there's the existence of the apple so it's like you see um you know an apple is a type of fruit and it has like different things or whatever but then there's like the essence of the apple which is much more than just like the different characteristics of the apple itself it's, it's sort of hard to describe this but everything in the world has an existence to it and then it has an essence of what that is and so too with God so it's like when we connect to God when we can when we try to emulate God's attributes we're doing this and it's, it's sort of like if somebody were to you know like we have like like nowadays you know you have like uh, people who are trying to create artificially generated meat so it's like they're taking all the characteristics of the meat and they're doing they're coming up with like pretty good results right but it's actually it's not meat even if it has all of the chemical you know um replications of the meat and uh, and every aspect of it it looks like meat it smells like meat everything about it really seems like meat it's not actually meat it's like the essence of it is not just meat so it's it's a replica of meat so similarly with us we emulate god's attributes it's great because we're supposed to do that and we want to be as godly as possible but we nevertheless need to realize that we are replicas of God we're not actually um, we're not actually tapping into God in an essential way it's more in just like an existence way we're, we're acknowledging the existence of God and we see that there's an allusion to this where um, Avraham called himself uh, that's from Breshi's chapter 18 verse 27 where he called himself I am dust and ashes so we had a whole other episode about this uh, quite a while ago uh, if you want to look it up I don't remember offhand which it was we talked about this what did Avraham mean when he said I am dust and ashes and what he meant by that is that like just like a tree like when uh, when the tree burns it eventually like what's left of the tree is the ashes even though yes the ashes contain within it the entirety of the tree Nobody would look at the ashes and say, oh, that's a tree. You know, it's it's a different thing, even though, yes, essentially it kind of is, but it's, it is the tree in a very external way. We spoke about how, like, in terms of um, the elements of creation, so there's, uh, earth, water, fire, and air. So uh, a tree, as an actual tree, has all of those elements within it and manifests very truly. And then, if it's just burnt down to the ashes, then all that's left is the earth element of the tree. So it's kind of like a very diluted kind of form of the of the tree. So that's that's the illusion. That's how Avraham Avinu saw himself: is that as much as he emulated the attribute of kindness, he was very humble and he was very aware of the fact that as much as he was the epitome, the archetype of kindness, he was really just like ashes to a tree compared to God's actual attribute of kindness. And so this is the same thing. When when we talk about the infinite light of God it says about it there's no thought that can comprehend it. No thought that can understand God's light and uh, and the radiance that comes from out, out of God's light. Um, so all we can do, we can't actually grasp the essence of God. What we can do is we can grasp the existence of God. We can say, okay, there, there's this thing called God, right? We can't really, really, as much as we learn from today to tomorrow, or whatever, it's all kind of like we're, we're skirting around that null hypothesis in a way. It's like we're saying what God is not in a weird way. Like we're saying like, yes, all these aspects that we're learning and chasadis these are like giving us like a semblance of god but we're also saying this isn't the full god this isn't the full thing we're acknowledging that we don't know the full story you know just like lehavtiel in a scientific method more you know facts and details are coming out all the time that add to what we know we always say we don't fully fully know everything and this isn't just true for humans it's actually true for supernal beings as well that what do supernal beings say the angels above say uh, this specifically the seraphim in the world of Bria is uh, they say as is quoted in Yeshayahu chapter 6 verse 3 Kadosh Kadosh Kadosh, kadosh Hashem Tzvako Tchulei holy 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 is the Lord of hosts so this word Kadosh holy it means uh, it means holy but it also means separated separate there's an acknowledgement there that we are separate these angels have this humility to recognize the fact that they are separate from god and they're very far from god and they realize recognize the fact that they cannot grasp god fully the only uh beings that can grasp god are those which are considered netzalim netzalim means emanated so those are the ones in the world of etzalus so in the world of etzalus where everything is one and unified then yes those beings there because it's we can't even call them beings they're not actually separate beings they are just like emanations from their source so those emanations are very much aware of their source because they have they're not separate at all you know um just like we've likened it to in terms of pregnancy, you know, the level of its would be like the potential for the child within the mother before it's actually, there's been conception happen at all. Like the egg, maybe we can say. So uh, a woman and her eggs are really one and the same and the eggs don't, they do experience the essence of the mother. They're one with the experience of the essence of the mother. But the second there's a conception there, then there's a separation. There's like the this child, even if it's just literally like, a, you know, a little um, zygote, like that's all it is, is this little teeny little thing. That is something separate from both the mother and the father. So, but when it comes to emanated beings, so the way that a time... Um, describes it it's uh, itheim describes this idea of the parts this is uh, literally means like a faces or visages like uh, basically these are how the parts of manifest Th- these are how the spheros manifest within the world of its and they're all interconnected they have no identity of their own just like the eggs inside of the mother or the sperm inside the father before the conception happens but this is not the case for created beings even if we're talking about the souls of Attilus because even if you have you could say okay what about like you know there are certain very 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 lofty people in the world whose souls originate from Attilus once they become uh, manifest down here in this physical world so even though yes their origin the origin of their souls in the world of Attilus now they're found here in this physical world and thus now they are considered to be creations and thus they don't have that same connection to essence like those uh, beings within Attilus itself is and and we see, for example, Moshe Rabbeinu, so we see that, uh, that God said, told Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, and this is found in Shemot chapter 33 verse 22, he said to him, you will see my hydra part. So even Moshe Rabbeinu, who is this, you know, the greatest prophet that ever lived, who most likely was from the uh, soul of Atzalus, he, even him, he was only able to experience the External aspect of God in other words the Matthias of God the existence of God why because he was down here in this physical world and that's all we can experience. So that's the end of the section today. So just to really sum it up the point of today is to kind of make us recognize um, the limits of our intellect the limits of our, our ability to connect to God through our own minds through our own understanding uh which is why when this which is what we do when we pray and which is what we do when we learn torah and so tomorrow we're going to get into mitzvahs and we're going to see how mitzvahs allow us to break through this limitation because there's something specific about mitzvahs that break us out of our own intellectual conceptions it's not about how much you know it's about what you do and through that action through that doing that allows us to connect to god's essence in a way that nothing else can